if you would look 20 minutes a day at, at flowers, you would, you would start noticing things that are not obvious. I don't know what those things are. But Joseph Campbell said, you know, find your sacred space or do your sacred thing. And if you do it constantly, I cannot tell you what, but something will happen. Welcome to the Vulnerability Challenge. I've set myself the challenge to be more vulnerable in 2020. So every month this year, I'll be taking on a vulnerability challenge set by someone new each time that is wildly out of my comfort zone. I hate to do things alone, so I'm dragging you along for the ride and sharing how they felt and what I learned. I'll also be interviewing someone every episode, exploring what makes them vulnerable too. I believe that sharing intimate stories that we might find embarrassing or painful are in fact the biggest source of connection between us and ultimately give power to ourselves and to others. I invite you to take the challenge too and join me on this journey. Let's get vulnerable. This month, flowers blew my mind. To put that into context, I need to rewind to the beginning of the month when I spoke with my friend Paul Bolentia on a video call. Paul is an experienced designer, award-winning author, and founder of the College of Extraordinary Experiences. The college is like Hogwarts, but better. After a week-long program at the Polish Castle, which gathers almost 100 curious minds from all over the world once a year, people leave, at worst, with a lot of learnings about experience design, or at best, a whole new perspective on life. Beyond the castle walls, Paul advises companies and governments to foster innovation and drive sustainable growth by shifting business models from services to co-creative transformational experiences. Paul is Romanian, and therefore my brother from another Balkan mother, and we connected at a TEDx conference a few years ago in Bucharest, where he treated the audience to an immersive sound experience. A link to that is included in the episode notes, and I highly recommend you watch it. As someone who has been fortunate enough to attend many incredibly designed experiences from immersive theater to Burning Man to interdisciplinary conferences, I often feel like my ability to be impressed by something gets harder and harder. Perhaps I'm a transient experience junkie. But Paul said that we can create our own moments of wonder very easily by turning to the ultimate experience designer herself, nature. And so it was that he set me the deceptively simple challenge of taking 20 minutes every morning to look at a vase of flowers. He spotted them in the background of our video call and immediately asked me to relocate them to right in front of me for the rest of the month so I had no way to avoid them. He said I needed to be open to the challenge. This wasn't just about passively looking, but about seeing. It's a practice of deep listening with your senses open. I was skeptical, as usual. A month-long viewing of flowers is the first thing we will explore in this conversation, but we will also cover everything from the concept of post-estatic stress, yes, as opposed to post-traumatic stress, and lessons in sex from ants. Let's get into it.
Well, hello. Here we are. Um, thank you for joining me, Paul. I'm so excited to talk to you. My pleasure. Same here. You sent me a kind of, I would say, deceptively simple challenge this month, which was to look at a bouquet of flowers that you spotted in the background of our last Zoom call um, for 20 minutes every day. Do you know why you picked that challenge? You know, I think that the, the extraordinary lies everywhere, right? The, the temple of God is in every single thing. So it was just very spontaneous that you asked me for a challenge. And then I, I, like you said, I spotted some flowers and I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, I'm here in Ecuador being surrounded by flowers and nature, but you're there in London, you might not have the same privilege. So I was like, even though you're there, you're still connected to, to the plant world, right? So also because people are experiencing yet another lockdown, and, you know, it's very, very simple to just uh, look what you have around your apartment for mindfulness practice. Definitely, definitely. And it was, um, would you like to know how it went for me? Very curious. Well, so there was a backstory to those flowers that I didn't actually tell you about. They were sent to me as a gift from a dear friend who knew that I'd been having a really tough month. So those flowers actually represented something for me pain, sadness, grief, love, many feelings were wrapped up in that bouquet. So sitting with them every day, I also sat with those feelings. It was the first time I fought in every way possible as an amateur florist to keep those flowers alive. And they lived for a whole month. They bloomed pink, yellow, speckled deep purple, and then darkened, folded in on themselves and started to fall. And when I looked closely, it felt like I was watching a theater performance, like broken down in five acts and full of drama and tragedy. There were heightened emotions and bursts of vivid color and then a softening. There were delicate, sensitive little buds that were learning how to take up space. They lived quite the life by the end of it from what I'd observed. They reminded me daily of the passage of time and its ability to heal, which I think was important for me in that moment. Um, you also said that my experience of watching the flowers could change over time, and I think it did. At first, I felt like I was watching this play on a stage depicting some world that was adjacent to mine. But then when I watched more, it felt like they were actually mirroring my story back to me. It felt very personal towards the end. I kept turning the vase every day to see it from different angles and different nuances to explore. And each petal told its own story of life and death, flamboyance and normality, softness and sharpness, stretching wide and then curling up. And in their combination, the flowers felt a lot like me, many contradictory things all in one place, but somehow it works. I think that symbiosis of complexity is what makes life so beautiful. And I often question if I'm allowed to be all these contradictory things in one. And I think the flowers reminded me that, yes, you can be and that what, that's what makes humans special. And when they did curl up and for I didn't cling on to them anymore and 
the pain that they represented in my own life in a way felt like it was healing it was really extraordinary. What a journey. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a journey. I think there's a sort of misconception with experience design that it's about escapism. And that experience reminded me that actually it's about going to this sensory stratosphere and then taking a look back at yourself. Or how would you describe experience design? You mentioned two things, right? One was this escapism, which is escaping from your own thoughts, feelings, emotions. And the other one is going within and and facing those. Um, In my career, I started with kind of designing for escapism. And then I moved towards more like inner journeys in terms of experience design. And I think that I always give this quote, it's a very dear quote, you already know it, I've said it maybe a hundred times by now, but you know, it's from Marcel Proust, and the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes. And that's kind of one way of doing experience design is always creating these new environments, new sensecapes, you know, however you you new stories new narratives but you know i think it's more about you know the true voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes but in having new eyes and that's the inner journey because then you know exactly how you did it with the flowers if you allow yourself to to see literally everything from a new perspective then there would be no need for escapism because there is nothing to escape. You had several acts and, and many feelings came up and they're all like the flowers, right? They're, um, they change shapes. Sometimes they're closed. Sometimes it's open. Sometimes it's, you know, it's um, going to die, but it's, there's also some rebirth. It's a cycle. Then you understand that, you know, there is nothing to escape from. And I think that's a really good place to be. There are some some people that say, you know, the best design ever is no design at all. And, you know, as being a professional experience designer, to mention that to clients is like, you know, the best thing that we can do is not design anything, but actually help people go on this inner journey and then be able to let go of the need to dominate. And here's, you know, where you have the difference between domesticism or domesticating and and wilderness, right? So you need to allow for wilderness to be, for free will to flow without trying to put design constraints on it. And once you're able to face that and not run away from it, then then that's a very beautiful place to be. That's, I think is the only place to be. So true. And you said um, that you've had your own kind of journey of experience design as a profession, but I was wondering what drew you to experience design in the first place? Like, did you know that that was a career or did that surprise you? I'm curious to know like the trajectory of how one becomes an experience designer or even understands that that's a job title. So it's very hard for me now, you know, being going through the squiggle <laughs> of the journey to reflect how it was for me as I was discovering it. But I can I can try to position it from from this per- perspective, looking back. 
you know, looking back, I think the kind of the first encounter that I had with this was when I entered um, ISEC um, as a student. It's the world's uh, largest student organization. And I saw their organizational culture. It was just stunning. Like, for example, each team in, in this organization, I mean, it's in more than 130 countries. And in each country, in several cities, and each city has uh, an organization that has more teams, and each team has their own kind of dance. You know, if you think of the haka, for example, kind of each team has their own haka, and then each each city has their own haka, each country has their own, and then you're learning these uh, these dances and you're performing them. You know, all of these rituals, all of these um, dances and and signs and and ways of interacting creates a really powerful experience. And also the fact that it's kind of bringing in people from so many different countries together. You get to, to learn about their culture, which is also rituals and, and ways of being and doing. Um, and I would say that was my first kind of interaction with experience design, not knowing that it is experience design. Another interaction that I had was I was a snowboard instructor. And you're, you know, when you're taking people to teach them how to snowboard, that's, again, it's, it's an inner journey, very much so. How you teach them, how you introduce them, how you help them, how you hold the space while they're learning, while they're facing fears and, and failing and trying again. And, you know, it has to do with a lot of interesting psychological factors that I would encounter later in my career. I didn't know it was experience design. It was just being a snowboard uh, teacher. And then um, I think when I officially encountered it was when I graduated from my bachelor and then I found out about the master's in innovation in tourism in Salzburg at the University of Applied Sciences and they talked about experience design. And I was like, oh, what is this? And I started looking for it and, and I was like, wow, I really want to learn more about this. So that's when that's when I applied there and got accepted. And then I realized that everything that we create as in spaces of interaction, of social interaction, has that layer of experience design in it. And that's where my frustration started because coming from Eastern Europe, going to, to Western Europe to study there, I had huge expectations from the educational system especially from a, from a program that is teaching experience design. I expected that the, they use the experience design lens on my experience as a student, but um, it turns out that you know, there was still the same traditional way of teaching and the same traditional way of education. So then I took matters in my own hand and started a student organization there and um, experimented with this. Um, with the power of it um, within the university, but somehow outside of an authority that said, okay, things need to be done in this and that way. And that then led me to, to writing a book um, where I realized that game design is pretty much, you know, a discipline of experience design in general, where they're really good at creating these flow-like states where they keep people engaged for hours and hours. So and then I combined game design with with how tourism experience are, are being designed and, and wrote the book 
and then it was crazy travels, keynotes, consulting, producing, participating. It was a crazy journey from there that ended up with a beautiful creation called the College of Extraordinary Experiences where yeah, I got to meet the most amazing people and learn from so many different perspectives and grow myself, of course. Yeah, and it sounds like the sort of place where you were able to do what you didn't get in Salzburg, which is teach and learn about experience design through an experience designed concept. So it was quite meta. But I think what's really interesting to me is that you said all of these things that you didn't realize were experience design were experience design because I would just, my brain immediately just goes to immersive theater and Punch Drunk, Sleep No More, Simon McBurney's Complicite, Yumi Bum Bum Train, Secret Cinema, uh, immersive dining like Queen of the Night in New York and obviously Burning Man and things like that. And I just, it's so interesting that that's also experience design is the fact that you were a snowboarding teacher. I just would never think of that. And then it makes me think, the next thing I really wanted to talk about was the idea of kind of being a transitory experience junkie. And now I'm worried that I'm even more so than I was because if there's so many more things <laughs> that were experience design, if university in and of itself is a form of experience design that I witnessed or was a part of, then perhaps I'm even more of a junkie than I thought I was. Like, what can you speak into the idea of being a transitory experience junkie and what that means? Yes, of course. I think it means chasing unicorns and feeding a hungry ghost, of how Gabor Mata would say, is all the experiences that you mentioned, which would fall into the immersive category, did not exist a couple of years ago. Um, the question is, what was filling that, that gap of escapism before, right? And, you know, to come to think of it, it was brands material stuff that you would buy. I would buy this bag or I would buy that car or I would buy that pair of jeans or shoes or whatever it is. When you dose up a lot on that and, and you see people that have huge closets and they're still not happy with all of the stuff that they not even not wear it. When all of that wears off, you need a higher dose of escapism, right? So then you go for the immersive, which is basically the same thing. And there's also a trap there because people could go for retreats over and over again and, and fail to take responsibility for their own transformation once they're outside of that space that makes it very easy to be present. So you just keep on chasing this and then you, you, you keep on feeding a hungry ghost that always wants more and more and more and more and more. Because what all of these experiences are, you have expert designers or multidisciplinary thinkers creating a state for, for people to be in a, um, in a state of heightened presence without them having to do any effort. And that, that in a way, it's creating more, more damage than anything because it, it, it's like always wearing crutches to be there, to be present, to, be, to feel alive, to feel energized, to feel like you have value whatever it is that the experience is meant to make you feel. But most, all of, all of these experiences are, are designed in such a way that you feel present. And when you get out of them, the, the fear of 
of missing out, the blues step in, wanting to go back there, not accepting, you know, your own environment, wanting to do changes, etc. All step in. And I think that is happening because we lost um, the most essential transformational experience that we had as humanity, which was done in the pre-agricultural pre times, and that is the experience of rite of passage and the experience of integration. The rite of passage was mostly done for young boys to transform them through an experience designed by the elders of a community to transform them for, from child to adult. And, and for women, the, the rite of passage, interestingly enough, is embedded, is biological. It's, it's already designed by nature, and that is the first menstruation. So then what the women were doing were just holding space for the integration of that experience for the girl to understand that there is a passing into a different stage of life, adulthood, and what that means and how is this a sacred experience. So we're moving to through this rite of passage to be able to see everything as sacred, right? Like if you just sit with those flowers, they're sacred, but everything else, you know, in your room or in, in the world is it's just like it's scram we scrambled it up to look in a different way, but it all of it is has the same source. It's so interesting. And I understand that with brands that they wouldn't it would be of no interest to them to give you any kind of decompression or integration experience after you've bought the brand. They just want you to buy more. But in our sort of new age where we do have these, we're sort of services and experience design, why has there been no interest in integration or decompression? Is it just because like we only pay to get high and we're not really interested in anything else? I think there are many reasons, but when it comes to kind of the entrepreneurship side right because th these practices have been done for millennia ever since the beginning of humanity and they all had integration as a huge part of it but when i started experience design there was no knowledge or i didn't find any book or any teacher that would say people would need to integrate this like when when it all started i don't think many professionals or practitioners were aware and so what we ended up doing was we just increased the level of immersion more and more until it hit that point where people in the experience come up to a realization of, of truth through synchronicity, I would say it. And that truth needs to be integrated. Um, so it, I think it's just in the recent years, recent year, that we we started seeing that and then there there are some organizations that are looking at that the most progressive ones it is clear that we have a huge need for that and i think with time integration is going to become a part of um, many immersive experiences um, already is for some the way we do it at the college is we first give a disclaimer of the experience saying that it's going to be intense. Um, it might be unintentional exposure therapy because of the level of novelty that you're being exposed to that will for sure 
access some areas of your mind that were dormant for a very long time just because of sm a certain smell or a certain conversation or a certain um, touch point from the experience opened up that locked doorway, it might just pop up. Also, you know, when you're dreaming because of so much novelty, there is a lot that your subconscious will will like show in that experience. So we're giving this disclaimer and we're saying, okay, if you're participating in this experience, you need to be aware that you're stepping into brave space. It's very hard to say for what a safe space for each person in an experience is. Um, so we would rather um, explain that you are responsible for your exploration you're encouraged to be brave, of course, because that will help you a lot. But you decide when to stop. You decide how much you want to explore, uh, how much time you want to take. And if you choose to come here, you might be, you need to be aware that there is an unforeseen consequence as a participation in this experience. I cannot tell you what might happen. As I cannot tell anyone what might happen if they would go in an expedition to the jungle for a month and then come back. I mean, of course, you can you can take the best people and have a lot of safety, but what will happen psychologically to you? I'm not talking about your physical safety, but what will happen psychologically to you after you come back from the from the jungle to the city? Um, you need to integrate that, and you need to be aware that there are not that many people that will have the patience to listen to you as there are not that many people that sit down for 20 minutes every day to look at the bouquet of flower. So you will need to make sure that you set up a right environment for your integration, a safe space with others to share, and that you show up every day to do the work. Most people expect from, from an experience that is labeled as transformational that they go there they do the experience, they come back, and then they're forever transformed. There is no such thing. It's daily work. It's, it's showing up 20 minutes every day looking at the flowers, at least 20 minutes. It's true. It's so true. And I think I, I heard you mention this before about the sort of like experience economy. Maybe you'll describe it better than I'm about to, but sort of going from a goods and commodities economy to services, which include experience design, to then we're sort of entering this age of transformational design and people that are searching for these transformational experiences. And I guess to counter your point about people that come back from experiences and do feel transformed and are trying to reintegrate that, what do you say to people that have these huge, we have huge expectations of these experiences now, especially if you're paying a lot of money for them, how do you sort of reduce the expectation of transformation? Or do you think it's even wise that we're using the word transformation in a capitalist society where people are now trying to buy transformation as if you can just go there and have it? The economic system is in need of a dire transformation. <laughs> Before before we're able to move forward with any sort of economic activity. For the College of Extraordinary Experiences or any other type of experience, the, you need to think about the carbon footprint. You need to think about, is this contributing to replenish the biodiversity or is it actually doing the opposite? Um, while we're having all of these um, 
you know, what Joe Pine calls the progression of economic value. The same progression of economic value is also doing a regression of biodiversity and life in general. So I will talk about the first one and then I'll refer to the second one. Um, Pine and Gilmore wrote an article a long time ago, over 20 years now or even more, about how we we the economic value have progressed from, from an economy based on commodities to an economy based on goods, right? So from where we were in an agricultural society and everything was supply and demand to then moving to an industrial society where supply and demand was a bit more stable and then brands made the difference in price to then moving towards a service economy, service-based economy where you know, we're, we're not going to make our own wine or buy it in a supermarket, but we're serving it in a restaurant to an experience economy where you're not buying the wine in a restaurant, but you're going to a winery, you're understanding the process, you're immersed in the thing, and then there is someone that thinks about how that would work. To the last one is how would the ritual of grapes harvesting and how that relates to the seasons and to the stars and to the moon. How does that reflect in you and what do we understand from that to the transformation, right? He also talks about time, right? How we move from, you know, services and goods or like in industrial economy, service economy looks at time well saved. It's looking at saving you time so you have time to do other things. An experience-based economy is looking at helping you spend time well, time well spent. And the transformation um, era or age or whatever we want to call it looks at how do we design for time well invested. So that's kind of how you look at time because ultimately as designers, you're a designer of time space using story. This is on one hand. On the other hand, as much as I love to talk about experience design in general, I have moved more towards thinking of the footprint that we have and how hard it is to find regenerative businesses around the world, right? We, at the college, we have this deck of cards and right now we're looking at producing one that we can, uh, it's experience design tips that we can sell. And I'm looking for a company that uh, uses regenerative paper practices, meaning not just carbon neutral, but and not just you know planting a monoculture of forest, but one that is looking at at biodiversity and and adding a plus. And on the other hand side, you know how does it use its inks? What are they made of? And how are they shipping worldwide? And I, after two months of research, I didn't find anything. <laughs> well, do you think that the future is? in a lot more digital content then if like it's if it's not possible to get things tangibly in a way that is so super sustainable do you think a lot of experiences will start shifting into digital you know material objects have a certain power and possess a certain quality that the digital experience does not have so i am not a big believer on moving towards tech I think everyone is feeling a general fatigue after a year of online. And I've recently even took part in, in someone invited me to, to try on a digital escape room experience. And I just wanted to leave the screen. Like, 
every day I'm trying to reduce my screen time as much as possible. Of course, digital can be used in such a way to create a, uh, to support the analog. I'm I'm a big fan of that to to have the backbone of an experience based in digital, but most of it to be an analog experience. What are your thoughts then on NFTs? I recently saw an article talking about the huge environmental damage that NFTs are doing. To me, everything that is that consumes a ton of energy for for not that much of an outcome is is not a very brilliant idea. Then I guess you probably feel the same way about cryptocurrency. Yeah, so I think the question would be how can we use the same but to go towards the positive growing biodiversity instead of reducing it. So how can we use technology in that sense? And even when we're looking at agriculture, who are we turning to? The indigenous people. Their technology, which is based on a deep understanding of the cycles of nature, is far superior to any solution, you know. But I think we are in this era where we have used technology for a lot and it has brought a lot of benefits, also a lot of negative side effects. I'm a strong believer in ancestral futurism. If we can learn from the deep insights of nature and then pair them with tech, then we have something. Mm. I fear I've potentially derailed us off a conversation about experience design. Or maybe I haven't because a lot more things are actually experience design than I thought they were, according to your snowboarding story. But I think one of my absolute favorite things that you've said that I just want you to explain to me again is the concept of post-estatic stress. After doing the college for three years, I've seen at the end of the event, and I think many of your listeners might relate to this experience of going somewhere to a retreat or to, to an experience, to Burning Man, etc., to a jungle expedition. And then at the end, there is this feeling like I don't want to leave I don't want to go. I want this to last longer. And there is also this fear of going back home and what that would mean. Students can relate to this. I I go to another country to study. It's over. Then I come back home. And then I'm not home. I'm still there. Um, Now, for experiences that are engineered to keep you for a long period of time in, in a state of high presence this this is ecstatic right to be fully present for four days where you don't have to put in any work (laughs) but just show up right and then everything else is taken care of and then you have to go back home and try to do it yourself it's it's really hard so after those five days um i've seen many people experiencing uh, a longing the blues um, wanting to go back, not feeling happy in their own environment, and I didn't understand what it is. So then I started doing a lot of research. And I stumbled across um, this term, which is post-ecstatic stress. And I realized that it, there is no, from, from a psychological perspective, other than one brings you negative feelings and the other one, like intense negative feelings, and the other one is not 
that intense of a negative feeling. It's just more of a feeling of sadness rather than a feeling of terror that you're not there or you don't understand what happened. But both of them are grounded in this, I don't understand what happened. And the stress comes from not being able to make sense or make meaning to craft a new narrative for yourself after a very intense event happened to you. That's where the stress is coming from. And that's where it's very important to, again, you know, coming back to integration, to have those people around you to hold the space, to hold you in order to engage yourself in a meaning-making process. And, you know, not everyone is lucky to have someone to hold that space. You can also go to therapy for that. It's very easy. You know, it's a service that you can pay for. And if you don't have capital for that, then you can do it yourself by allocating time to journal or to paint or to dance it out or to reflect on it until that new narrative is crafted. Because if that new narrative is not crafted, then that experience will be like a ghost in your mind for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's so true. And it's so weird. I've definitely had post-ecstatic stress. When you come back from an experience like that, you kind of have, that was a peak. And then you kind of enter this valley or this sort of like space of missing out, this valley of discontent. And in order to try and stay between those two levels of a peak and a valley, that there's like this plateau space. How does one stay in the plateau space or what is the plateau space for? Is that like just premium above normal living? Well, that's what Abraham Maslow in his late life after a heart attack uh, figured out and came up with because all, you know, we're all familiar with the hierarchy of needs from Abraham Maslow and, you know, the the last level, the top level is the peak experiences, being able to have many of those. But then he realized that that is not a sustainable <laughs> practice. Um, and after his heart attack, which was transformational for him, he entered a, a different mindset where he he was able to have many different peak experiences on a day without being destabilized. Um, and, and the reason why he was able to do that was, well, A, because he had that powerful experience that kind of changed him, but he also has daily practices, I imagine. Um, so what does it mean to be in that plateau state? I think other people would use a synonym to being grounded and centered. Not just grounded only, because you can be grounded and not centered, and you can be centered and not grounded. And if you think of gymnastics, if you think when a gymnast is like um, doing acrobatics, they might do a, a great spin in the air, and that means they're centered. But if they don't land it, that means they're not grounded. So if you're both centered and grounded, that means to be in that plateau state. And if we think of the gymnast, how much work does a gymnast need to do to be both centered and grounded? You need to be in your body, first of all, right? You start with your body. If you're not feeling your body and if you're not having a body practice, a daily embodiment practice, you know, even you see it at TV, do half an hour of sports a day. <laughs> this is like common knowledge. You, you cannot even think in, or imagine to be in this plateau state, right? 
but then it's not only the body, it's also the mind, it's also the, the soul and the spirit, right? So you need to have a, a, a mindfulness practice, you need to have an artistic practice. And these daily practices will keep you in that state of plateau, meaning you're centered and grounded. So if you enter in, in that state and you're able to stabilize it in your life and cement it, and I've, I've talked with many people that start a practice of mindfulness and they're saying, well, I've been doing this for five months and it's not working for me. It's, it's work of years and years, five, six, seven, eight, nine years continuously doing it until you, 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 can, you can feel that state. Again, you know, it's, we live in this, like, we need a fast solution to it. I want to be in plateau, like, tomorrow I just listen to this conversation and I'm going to just do it. No, it's like doing the daily work. And once you're able to, to have that daily practice and you stick to it, and you also don't judge if you're missing any of it, because that's also not helping you with anything, but you just like continue showing up, then you're in this state where everything can become a peak experience. And you might just have a peak experience and then you can easily come back to your day-to-day -day life without being destabilized. And I've seen some of these people um, at my events. For example, we have John Law, who was the co-founder of Burning Man, uh, coming to the college. And for him, it was... It was a delight to be at the college, but it didn't destabilize him at all. Zero. He's also like 70-something. He's wise. He's one of the most humble persons I've met, but so grounded and centered. So if you're grounded and centered, you can go to any type of sort of event. And you know... a being in a plateau would also rid you of your expectations, right? Which you, you talked many times until now. It's like, I have the expectation, my bar is rising. Like, if you don't have expectation, then you can experience peak even, you know, right in this moment, it's a peak experience. What is your way to stay centered and grounded? Like, what is your daily practice of scaffolding for yourself? I've tried so many things um, along the years, so it's it's always an organic shifting practice. Like I, I had years where I was like very strict on like I need to do this amount of meditation as soon as I wake up and I need to then have my matcha tea and then I need to have my ceremony and this and that. While now every, um, I've evolved in such a way that everything can be a practice. You know, for example... I started doing lots of sit spots in nature where you just sit down for an hour, an hour and a half and you're just sitting down and, and looking at nature. I did some that are a bit more intense, which I go to the jungle in the middle of the night with one or two persons and we, we do a one hour to two hour sit spot in dark and we allow the frequencies of the insects, frogs, animals to just like penetrate us literally to just like to create this symbiosis and that's really powerful um mindfully drinking a cup of tea journaling when i'm feeling off and and the more you do this the more you start being in tune with your emotions so then i stop you know this is also practice then you stop it's like well i can just eat a you know i can eat some chocolate or i can watch some netflix or i can you know do something but no then i stop and then um, there are many ways that I usually do self-assessment, but one really powerful one is like drawing a mandala 
So you just make a circle and then you allow your hand to just draw by itself. And then you look at it and then it, it becomes clear what it is. Um, so you, you do introspection. Um, walking, mindful walking, breathing, breathing in for free steps, breathing out for free steps, breathing in for free steps, breathing out for free steps. Um, walking with my eyes closed for kilometers and kilometers. You can do this on the beach. I don't recommend that you do it in London. Uh, <laughs> everything is a practice. Looking at flowers, listening to birds. Do you, I wonder how much of that um, causes, is e either works quite well in partnership or causes an issue in partnership because I've noticed some people have some quite particular daily rituals that they do that's like, as you said, like I have to wake up and I have to do this amount of meditation and then this amount of yoga and then this amount of matcha tea. And it's like, if you're in partnership with that person, it can be quite intense because it's like, okay, that's like an hour and a half of time that's taking up quite a lot of space. And, you know, I have like things I want to do and things I want to talk about with you. And so like, how have you ever had that as an issue where it's like, do I like, how much do I need to keep to my rituals? Or as you say, do you adapt your rituals? Are you not quite so like militant about it where you actually say, okay, I'm with this person for this period of time. Let me move my rituals around to a time that's more suitable or let me use more integrative rituals or let me share in those rituals or are you still like no no I have to do this amount of time by myself yeah that's that's a very good one and it can be really fun and frustrating um I've experimented a lot with that I think one thing that can get in the way of you being able to be in that space is for you to be attached to your to your routine and your practice and let's say because of your partner, you fail to do your morning ritual, which, you know, is attached to morning <laughs> because I don't know, your partner might need to have a conversation or wants to have breakfast or wants to cuddle, whatever it is. And then you can become frustrated and angry about that, right? And it can ruin your whole day. But that means you didn't achieve that understanding of everything is practice, and, and then you're getting yourself blocked into, into a, a weird thing. Like you're getting yourself blocked into the expectations. You're getting yourself blocked into, I need to do this in order to, f to feel good during the day. Which is a trap. So I think, you know, the, the key here is being completely open and not being attached to doing that 20 minute headspace guided meditation first thing as you wake up but looking around you like I look around me and I see trees I can just sit with that it's fine and I sit with it for one minute and it's more than enough and then I do a minute later yeah I think if you have such prescriptive um, practices, maybe that's a question in and of itself, right? Like, why do you feel like it needs to be so textbook? Again, to, to not derail us too far from the experience design conversation, you know, you said your Marcel Proust quote, uh, so how can we see with new eyes? And in this time where we're not traveling much, and in relation to your challenge, how can we make rather than seek or inspiring experiences? It's a tough process. 
it's really hard to see when the mind and the body and, and the soul is disturbed. There is so much conflict that one feels in, its, in him or herself. So until that conflict is not addressed, new eyes cannot emerge. And that's the experience design of inner exploration. You know, Carl Jung was really great at documenting that. And I don't think we derailed at all because, I mean, everything is experience. We only have experience. There is nothing else but that. And that's why it's so, so fascinating of a topic. But I would say, you know, it can be as simple as giving up your devices for a week. No laptop, no, no phone, nothing. Or, you know, if that's too much and it's too extreme, giving out your devices for three, three hours. And then you're going in this vipassana practice where you have to sit with your feelings. And until those feelings, emotions and thoughts are not, are not able to, to detach from, from who you truly are, then you cannot see with new eyes because they're they're creating a short-sightedness. <laughs> I love the idea of how can you do less and find more? Um, and I was wondering if you could give me an example of a time, because I think in experience design, I think it goes back to my question of this kind of expectation of transformation where you go to places and you're like, okay, I'm expecting to get this kind of result from this experience, but actually you can do something completely different, you know, a walk through the park or um, sitting in nature and you can actually get more out of that experience just precisely because you weren't anticipating anything or because you didn't have a plan. And I was wondering if you had an example of a time when you did less but found more. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm doing that every single day. Um, I give you a beautiful example from, from yesterday. I went to the beach to do my sit spot, um, closed my eyes and sat there. And then little did I know, but it was a lot, of, there were lots of ants all around the sand. So then I started feeling how they're like crawling on me, like on my feet and I was like okay I'm just gonna sit with it and breathe so I sat with that and then more and more started just like climbing on me two of them bit me and I was sitting with that and feeling feeling what it is you know to to feel that in your body and then one climbed like on my neck I was just climbing climbing on my neck and then slowly started approaching my lips now I've never felt such an intense, I don't know what it was, such an intense sensation in my life. Because as that little ant was approaching my mouth, it just went on my lips. And because it has very little tiny fingers, it touched sensors in my, you know, in my lips that were so sensitive that, you know, like, I've never experienced this in any, you know, like, partner interaction with, like, it was, like, so intense that, you know, I just you just want to take the ant away because it's, like, you know how you're being tickled, but then it goes beyond that and you're able to sit with that ticklish feeling? 
at an extreme thing. So then it started moving along my lips and I was sitting with that. And then it moved towards my nose and then it entered my nose. And that's even more sensitive. Then it came back, it entered the other way. And then we, it went all the way to my ear, inside and out. And then it left down the neck, back on the sand. And that was so, so, so intense. Now, what that experience did was besides the fact that it carried me, you know, somewhere beyond ecstasy, it, it, it connected parts of my mind that I didn't know were existing. And then when I went and had an experience with my partner, I applied what I learned from the end in my day-to-day -day life in practice. And that was like unlocking very interesting very, very interesting experiences. So I did not expect that the ant will show me the way to this, but it totally did. And it also, I think it also unlocked many interesting uh, dimensions in, in my subconscious, in dreams and, and so on. Wow, hooray for the ant. I was a bit worried about where that anecdote was going, <laughs> but ants can be great teachers. That's a, I feel like you've had a, tantric lesson from your aunt friend how beautiful what was the most vulnerable experience of your life so as an experienced designer I was completely unaware that I was designing from a point of trauma and that trauma was me being unable to help my mother as a young child while seeing her being abused by a man in front of me and as I grew up, I forgot about that experience totally. You know, it was just like buried deep inside, you know, going to university, being part of ISEC, then writing this book, doing all of these things, which completely forgot about my past. And then as a designer, whenever I was creating experiences, I was always being affected by how people felt. And whenever I, I saw that someone was feeling a little bit of discomfort, I was greatly affected by it. Like my body was affected. I was like wanting to do something about it. And when you're creating experiences at that level with so many people, everyone is affected. But I was being triggered so deeply by it to the point of, you know, in the third year of college, collapse. What did collapse look like for you? Because I think a lot of people talk about burnout or um, breakdown, but like what, how did that manifest itself in your physicality for you? Well, it was at the end of, of the event and I just literally went to bed and just like fell down and I was like, my body was cold and my mind went so much so with experience design that it became my lens of seeing the world. That I need to, to, to always change the world in order to make myself and others being flow. So even when I collapsed there, I looked, I know I remember I looked at the ceiling and I would say there are too many angles on this ceiling. It needs to be minimal. It's creating these types of kind of fractal experience as a reflection in me. <laughs> um, so that was the collapse. And then in the aftermath, 
I couldn't enjoy, I had a very hard time enjoying my life. Then I was like walking on the street and I was just seeing the mess of a city, like how, how bad it is designed. Then I was in a restaurant, I couldn't enjoy it because I was always thinking about how bad it is designed. Then I was, you know, I couldn't enjoy my life at all because I was thinking about how bad everything is designed and how me, I can change everything. If only they would, you know, if only they would change, you know, the tablecloth. If only they would change this. If only they would, you know, make everything simple. If only, why? So that everyone else is feeling in flow. Everyone else is feeling good as opposed to how, how I was perceiving them. Do you think that connects with your trauma in the sense that you wanted to control things because as a child you were unable to control that experience and now that you were older you were like I can actually do things differently and so they should be like this. Exactly. And then how did you re-understand that it was actually your trauma that was even causing this and then how did you make a change? I started with talk therapy and then at the same time I was part of a one-on-one conversation with a dear friend of mine where we had like uh, check-ins every two weeks we still have it to this day I also started working on this book about how to which is the next book that moves you know how to create memorable experience to how to guide transformational experiences and I was learning more and more about that so I was both doing therapy also kind of this deep friendship of like vulnerability and openness while also researching the nature of transformation experience and I was learning so much and then I saw that and then many things happened like one of the things that happened was and we were just talking about it previously right how do you get those new eyes like once I realized it and I was able to to let go of the need of changing my environment all the time, a huge, a huge amount of energy got released. <laughs> because until then, all my focus and energy was how do I modify my environment? And when I was not thinking about that, then I could actually enjoy the environment with its imperfection. And then while I was researching the nature of transformation, it was always, always, you know, as an experienced designer, I never thought that I would end up looking at the nature of trauma. It's always trauma. It's always trauma, personal trauma, collective trauma. You know, if you look into Stanislav Grof, which is an amazing practitioner and scientist, he talks about, you know, biographical trauma, perinatal trauma and transpersonal trauma you know, collective trauma. It's like, there's so much. And understanding that changed everything for me. And I I stopped being what I call like a, a designer that puts a lot of energy into changing things to more going towards the principle of Wu Wei, which is this Taoist principle of effortless action. And as a designer, I evolved from me doing a lot of changes in a space to me showing up and that's it. And, and just, you know, perceiving what's, what's going on in an experience and then doing small, small tweaks to nothing, but just being there and and listening and, and, and not even feeling the need to say anything. Someone else will say it at one point, I don't need to say anything. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, it sounds like you were able to relinquish that level of control, which I think is my biggest issue too. I don't know what seat of trauma that my need for control lives in, but I'm wondering, were you able to have a kind of open conversation about that with your mother or did through the therapy, were you able to just kind of put that experience in a different place or did you have like a catharsis in some form? I did have conversations with my my mother and my sister and and my father. At the beginning, the conversations were not very constructive, as expected. But then I realized that they, I I realized the bigger picture, right? Like 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 you realize the bigger picture when you're looking at the flowers. Is they also had biographical trauma perinatal trauma and transpersonal trauma so then I changed the conversation from how did this happen to tell me about how you grew up tell me about grandma tell me about grandpa tell me about their lives understanding that changed everything because I I, I just noticed that you know what my parents were doing were nothing else but do the same cycle again in a different Yet, right, um, and Dr. Gabor Mate, which is an, an excellent, you know, an excellent resource that I would recommend to anyone to have a look into when it comes to being, you know, the experienced junkie, but also when it comes to living life. He talks about becoming a cycle breaker, and a cycle breaker is that person that starts to to face. You know, what we said about, you know, you, you, you lock away technology and books and everything and you sit with what is and you start to use compassionate inquiry and you start like being open and explore and and allow energy to unlock. And interestingly enough, because, you know, neither of us have kids, we are the, the tip of the spear of an entire generation. And if we're able to process that, you know, post-traumatic stress that lives in our bodies, inherited, um, and, and, uh, and kind of liberate it. Funny enough, the same thing happens or slowly starts to happen for the rest of the family. Like, I managed to do it for myself, and, and now I see my sister growing in a very beautiful way. I see my mother as well, and I see my father. Of course, not as fast and not as rapid, but there is there is a huge family energetic shift. Yeah, and everyone will do it on their own time. And maybe you're a bit like me and you're like, why can't you do this faster? <laughs> but it's like everyone in their own space. And I think it circles back to a lot of other stuff we've been saying, which is in our kind of fast-paced society where we want answers to things immediately, we're just looking for cures to symptoms, not cures to causes. And it reminds me of another Garbo Mate quote, which is, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And I think it's very easy to be like, oh, you're addicted. These are the symptoms. Let's fight those with pills, with like quick fixes. But actually, when you go down the route of why the pain, that's like a much longer road, but it potentially leads and yields to more long lasting results. And I agree with you that we are, we need to fix all our transgenerational trauma in order to not pass it down to the next generation. I mean, it's quite a lot of, um, I guess, pressure to do that. I think 
I wonder if you agree, as like Eastern European people, I sometimes think I actually feel less of a transgenerational family trauma than what I do feel, which is a sort of trauma of the land. I feel my country's pain as a nation that has been through so much war, civil war, which I think is often the worst kind of war. I feel that conflict in me more so than like my parents or my grandparents' personal experiences. I just feel this conflict constantly. I think it's a, it's a global it's a global kind of inheritance, right? It's like all land is traumatized. Not only as war, but also as like murder of plant and animal life, which which is also part of us. It's you know there's there is this funny thing of I've just recently started getting a lot into mycology and there is this book um, that I'm quoting is that in light of the new science, the word I became obsolete. There is no me in a way, right? So that's why the healing is the territory beyond, you know, nation state is the whole thing. And I don't think, you know, you mentioned the pressure. I do, I, I see the pressure, but I don't feel it because I know this is the work of many future generations to come. We're just like restarting it again, slowly, you know, many people start to become aware of it and we're all working and, but it's a lot, it's a lot inherited. There is this interesting topic of research, it's called the history of children. And it's looking at how children were, were being treated in, I don't know, 15, 14, 13, 12, 16th century, 17th century. For, for a long period of time, at least in kind of Europe, children were not considered to be human and to have memory. <laughs> so the atrocities that were done to children are, you don't even want to imagine, you know, what atrocities would be done to children in a paradigm of that sort we all feel it and as i feel like as as soon as you unlock a layer of that pain more is coming out but with the same wisdom of not being attached to your daily routine looking in a certain way not being attached to solving the pain in a certain way and feeling okay that pain will always be there to a certain degree and yeah doing the daily processing yeah and I love um how cyclical this conversation is going because I think we spent so long throughout the sort of 70s 80s 90s understanding that we were in the century of the self and that everything was I what do I want what do I need what can I buy how can that make it better that if this century is hopefully a bit more focused on a collective we and that that collective we also includes the environment and our planet and nature I think that's really where it's at is like untraumatizing this land that we've been destroying and fortunately the earth is an incredibly resilient place that can in often cases be re-pollinated recreated into something like it used to be and I want you to tell me a bit about what you're doing 
the kind of is a regenerative project that you're working on in Ecuador? A group of us came together to learn more about this and, and the level of depth. We didn't start doing any active work yet, so we're still kind of trying to understand what does um, the transformation of a, of a destination mean and how complex is that. And, you know, some of the key learnings that I, that I took from, from the work that was done so far was that everything is deeply connected to, not to the land, but to the people that inhabit the land. As long as the two don't work together in symbiosis, then no, no sustainable or regenerative change can be achieved. And how, how still capital is ruling in terms of providing easy jobs. If you want to move away from monoculture to create um, regenerative agricultural practices like agroforestry, where you plant more than 500 different species of plants in a couple of hectares to ensure that richness in biodiversity and cross-pollination and the free passing of animals from untouched land to untouched land, how do you market that? How do you make money out of that? How do you make money out of something that is following the rules of the seasons? Well, then you need to come up with a product that will be seasonal, that will be never taste the same, right? We always want to have the same taste in a chocolate, but if if we give up that expectation, then we, we are able to connect deeply with the everlasting difference in this fruit and that fruit and this season versus the other season. So it needs sort of like both a understanding here locally and a working together with that requires years and years and years and years just for a small plot of land to a change in, in how we perceive and, and kind of eat or buy stuff. But I think even more than that, what, what changed happened in me is I feel more than ever in pursuit of building my own house and kind of tending the land with my own hands and, and doing the work myself in a mic micro scale rather than creating huge projects where I'm trying to do this at scale, do it myself and then maybe other people are going to be inspired. I'm in a house here in the middle of nature, surrounded by nature, and I was just talking yesterday about how this is a privilege. It is a privilege not to see light pollution around. I can see the stars. Not to have sound pollution, I can hear the birds, I can hear the ocean and not to have land pollution, you know. The plants here are healthy, the air is clean, and how that is a privilege, and how it is a privilege to have a roof made out of bamboo with palm trees, and to experience living in such a house with a huge roof. And I was just reflecting on it, and it took me back to my childhood and say, wait a minute, like I grew up at the countryside, in a house that had you know, 
an edible forest, agroforestry. I had like all sorts of fruits and vegetables available. And the, the house felt really good. It was quiet. There was no sound pollution. There was no noise pollution. And the food was there locally sourced. And this was just within my generation 30 years ago. Like, why does it have to be a privilege? Well, it's because we changed our lifestyle so much in the course of 30 years that now living in a house that should be like this, that should be normal for everyone is a huge privilege, right? I don't even want to imagine what it is to be living in a metropolis and how much noise that is making in one's life. Yeah, maybe that's how you do less and find more is um, you create your own cocoon of space. Would you want be inclined to do it where you are in Ecuador? Or is there a part of you that's like, no, I need to build that in Romania? Yeah, I feel called back to the to the land, to Romania in in Transylvania. I have some final wrap-up questions that I do at the end of every single one of my episodes, which is called the quick fire uncomfortable questions round. And it consists of questions that I personally have been asked and found incredibly uncomfortable to answer and difficult to answer. And so I want to give you a go at them. I feel you'll be much better at them than I was. Um, And I'm looking for sort of like quick guttural responses. Are you ready? Ready on, on the hot seat. Okay. My first question is, give me three reasons why you are lovable. Wowzers. Um, peaceful, attentive, I would say creative. They say that what you resist persists. What do you think you resist the most? Hmm. Commitment to a romantic relationship. Do you know why? Um, This is the thing that I am processing right now. I think it has to do something with what I've seen as a child not working out, but then also what I continue seeing around not working out. And knowing that I don't want to to repeat the cycle again. Not repeating the cycle isn't going to happen by completely avoiding relationships. <laughs> You have to, like, get into them in order to not repeat the cycle. Exactly. I'm not avoiding relationships. I'm not... Maybe it's because I feel like... And I it just this just came to me as being a nomad and always traveling. I don't have a nest where I'm, I feel rooted yet. So maybe I feel like I need to go for that experience of building a nest first. My next question is... Who in your life would you like to connect to more? It's always, you know, when you're asking these questions, you need to listen to the answer that comes to you first. So what came to me first was uh, my father. Because I didn't get the chance to connect with him at all. And there was a very long period where um, I mean, he left us when we were kids and he, he himself had a very troubled experience in life. 
and I'm reaching out to him every now and then, but I think he's the last one that's not been too much integrated in my life. And the fact that he left us shouldn't, shouldn't um, give him any less time than I'm offering to other members of the family. I have one final question on my list of questions. Is there anyone you would like to apologize to? And if so, what for? It's very funny because on, on one hand, I would like to apologize. But on the other hand, I feel like I shouldn't in a way that the two cases that come to mind are always about me holding space and being open and then deciding that at one point to put borders. In both cases, I feel justified to, to create those boundaries. There's also a lot to be said, yeah, for like not forgiveness. And I think I'm quite a adamant person when it comes to my grudges. But I, do, I think grudges is the wrong word. Like I'm, I have my boundaries and I hold them up with the intention of portraying some kind of stance on what I think about a particular action that somebody has taken against me. Because if you don't stand for something, you fall for anything, right? And so I just feel like I have friends that forgive all the time. Like they forgive all their exes. They forgive all these people. And I'm just like, but they've learned nothing. And I know that it's not my job to like teach everybody a lesson. But I'm like, I feel like I have done nothing by way of actually putting across what my thoughts and feelings were like you haven't learned how I feel about this if I just forgive you Mm -hmm. I don't know if that resonates at all yeah it does for for my cases a little bit different is that I forgive them for what they did but I don't feel I'm pretty sure from their side because of the borders they think that I was rude or misbehaved in in a certain way and me f- asking for forgiveness would, would just like help them let go of their part of the things. But from my side, I don't hold anything against anyone. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I'm aware it's been a long time and um, I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tiana, as well. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this month's vulnerability challenge. This podcast is an open invitation to join me on this journey by doing the challenges too, modifying them or submitting new ones directly to me on Instagram. You can find me on at Tamborich, that's at T-A-M-B-U-R-I-C, where we can support each other and swap experiences because we can all be each other's accountability buddies. Let's get vulnerable.